Hey, everyone. We're finally getting to all of your questions and comments about the Richard Adderson case next month. Thank you for the unbelievable response with your calls and your emails. I've been reading and listening to some great messages that you've sent to Turkey and me, and we look forward to tackling them all in our second episode in March. Now, the cold case shows on TV are nowhere nearly as accurate as their wooden dialogue, great hair, and neat and tidy plot lines would have you believe. But we watch them because we enjoy the drama, and we're curious about how cold cases are handled and solved. But the truth is, cold cases are cold for a reason, and they're very rarely solved in a neat and tidy manner. In this episode... I'll explain why some homicides go cold, and then in a follow-up episode, the turkey and I will walk you through the basics of a cold case investigation and provide you with at least some understanding of how detectives go about looking at a case like the Richard Adderson homicide investigation. There's a lot to digest in one sitting, and that's why I'm breaking it up into two episodes. From the outskirts of New York City... Slim Turkey is pseudonymously hosted by Lee Purchase, with the occasional cluck from the Yonkers love chicken himself, Mr. Slim Turkey. The term cold case is often credited to a Miami newspaper reporter back in the 1980s. At the time, a young girl had been brutally raped and murdered during a particularly violent crime wave occurring in the Florida County. The murder drew so much media attention that the Homicide Bureau assigned a team of highly experienced detectives to work the case, and they succeeded in solving it. The team then continued to work on other unsolved cases under the pending case squad, but that Miami reporter renamed them the Cold Case Squad, and the term stuck. So what is a cold case? And what's the difference between a cold case and a case that has gone unsolved? Well, the truth is, there is no universal definition of a cold case. It varies from one agency to the next. But the criteria used by a joint task force made up of the FBI and the District of Columbia's Metropolitan Police Department in the 1990s contains elements accepted by many agencies, and they are Quote, cases that are at least one year old and could not be addressed by the original homicide squad because of workload, time constraints, or the lack of viable leads, end quote. That being said, I prefer the National Institute of Justice's definition, which declares a cold case as any case whose probative investigative leads have been exhausted. This means a case that is only a few months old may be defined as being cold, end quote. So that means any case that has run out of leads has gone cold. But the term cold case often has negative connotations for the victim's family and friends, and sometimes even for homicide investigators, too. To some, a cold case implies that the case will never be solved. 
its case files soon to be relegated to a dusty old box somewhere in the deep recesses of the investigating department's warehouse. Justice never served for the victims and a lack of closure for their loved ones. I remember speaking with Richard Adderson's son, Dave, last summer and asking him if he believes he'd ever find closure in his father's case. His response was quick and definitive. Do you think that there will ever be closure? To, to me, to me, closure is finding out who did it, whether or not it's after he died and whether or not he turns himself in, right. whether or not some type of crazy information comes in and we find the guy. Yeah. Or, he, you know, to me, closure in, in this regard is finding the guy who did it in a broad sense, yeah. Now, it's not just semantics. The term unsolved lends hope to a family struggling to make sense of the sudden and violent death of a loved one. An unsolved case suggests that despite the passage of time and lack of investigative leads, detectives and investigators have not given up hope of their own. They're still actively working on the case and continue to demonstrate the will and desire to see it through to its end. Whether that be reading through the case details every day or thinking about the victim's surviving family members a couple of times a month. We've all heard the term, perception is reality. According to Henry David Thoreau, it's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. And I see Richard Adderson's case yet unsolved and hardly cold. Consider for yourself the thoughts that come to mind when you think of an unsolved case versus a cold case. I'll wait. Nevertheless, there are realities that make a cold case homicide among the most difficult that a detective may confront. Cases become cold for a variety of reasons. Lack of evidence, limited resources, inexperienced investigators, uncooperative witnesses, and ineffective investigations. Yet, contrary to popular belief, exaggerated by the proliferation of TV shows and films focusing on real-life forensics and cold case investigations, homicide clearance rates have actually fallen significantly over the last half century. And for those not familiar with the term, a clearance rate is simply the number of cases cleared by an arrest and prosecution divided by the number of cases recorded. So, for example, if your city recorded a total of 10 murders last year and the police were able to arrest eight separate perpetrators, each one responsible for one murder, their clearance rate would be 8 divided by 10, or 80%. Now, it gets a little complicated because each police department determines its own algebraic formulas for clearing crimes, even murder. But I'll leave that for another day. Bueller. Bueller. Bueller, Bueller. Stay with me now. 
So, according to the FBI, the clearance rate for murder and non-negligent manslaughter across the United States in 2017 was nowhere near 80%. It was an alarming 61.6%. The 2016 clearance rates in Chicago and Detroit were even more frightening. 26% in Chicago and 15% in Detroit. In Chicago, that amounts to authorities arresting and prosecuting one out of every four murderers. And in Detroit, it's only about one out of every seven. Last summer, USA Today ran a headline decrying the declining clearance rates as a national disaster. And the clearance rates for murder have traditionally been the highest for all other major crimes because no other crime is measured as precisely and accurately as murder. In his book, Cold Case Homicides, Practical Investigative Techniques, R.H. Walton writes, for the protection of society and the rule of law, it is incumbent on the police to identify those who kill and for the criminal justice system to adjudicate their actions in accordance with the law. And I agree. Bringing to justice those who take the life of another is arguably the most important function of law enforcement. Failure to do so leads to a lack of confidence in the rule of law and may tip the delicate balance of our society. So what's at the root of this national problem? Well, according to Robert C. Davis in the Rand Corporation's cold case investigations, until recently, police enjoyed a high solvability rate for many types of crime. In those time of high clearance rates, it was thought that investigators contributed little to solving cases. Instead, cases cleared themselves through the efforts of patrol officers and witnesses. In fact, a study found that 80% of cases were solved at the crime scene by the actions of responding officers or by information about the identity of the perpetrator supplied by a victim or witness. However, the view of the role of investigations began to change as homicide clearance rates declined, and they have steadily decreased from 91% in 1965 to 63% in 2010, and then to 61.6% in 2017. Criminologists offer a wide variety of explanations for the falling homicide clearance rates. Many attribute the lack of success in murder investigations to the changes in the nature of violent crimes. The increase in deaths caused by guns and, more specifically, shootings without any physical struggle suggests that there's little chance for investigators to collect the perpetrator's DNA at the scene. Was this the case in Richard Adderson's homicide? Remember, passing motorists did witness two men arguing on the side of the road, but I've never heard of any report stating that the argument led to fisticuffs. Some assert that the rapid growth of anonymous and relatively random stranger-on-stranger homicides make that specific crime the most difficult of all to solve. Again, if Richard's death was fueled by a road rage incident, that may have presented yet another obstacle in the investigation. But among the biggest issues, and this is according to police, criminal justice academics, and all other experts, is the lack of willingness to get involved. 
to report crime and other wrongdoing, to cooperate with the police, and to believe that they can make their communities safer. Now, both studies and statistics have shown that residents in predominantly minority areas are more reluctant to assist law enforcement in providing critical information in order to solve crimes. But honestly, it's become a problem in all neighborhoods. I see it every day in my job. It's this no-snitch culture that often makes it impossible to solve crimes, and especially murder. I looked up the demographics of Fishkill, New York, the town where Richard Adderson was shot and killed, and of Manchester, New Hampshire, the city where his killer likely resides or once resided. Now, according to the U.S. Census Bureau's 2017 estimates, the racial makeup of Fishkill, New York was 62% white, 16% Hispanic, 13% black, 7% Asian, and less than 2% other. Manchester, New Hampshire was nearly 80% white, 9% Hispanic, 5% black, 5% Asian, and about 1% other. So, because the killer was driving his Jeep with New Hampshire license plates and he undoubtedly realized that he had at least committed a felonious assault with a weapon, he either continued driving to New Hampshire ahead of the police net that would be cast sometime after the homicide, or he may have remained somewhere in the vicinity to avoid being stopped by the police that night, who did have a description of his vehicle. Let's assume... Everyone knows when you make an assumption, you make an ass out of you and umption. My mother told me that same thing. But let's assume anyway that in either scenario, he would have had to tell someone something. If he unexpectedly had to stay the night somewhere in New York, he would likely have made some bullshit excuse of why he didn't travel back to New Hampshire. And by morning, someone would have heard about the murder. And that person didn't report a crime or someone acting suspiciously. And when he finally made it back home and began to feel like he was safe, whether that was weeks, months, or even years after getting away with the murder, he would have likely told someone about that night on February 5th, 1997. And that person hasn't yet fully cooperated with police. See, it's not an assumption that someone from either suburban New York or Manchester, New Hampshire, chose not to get involved. If they had, the killer would have already been identified. And that has nothing to do with neighborhoods or demographics. The problem is pervasive and colorblind. In a News OK article entitled, Getting Away with Murder, Oklahoma City Police Chief Bill City, who has seen a sharp decline in his own department's homicide clearance rates, is quoted as saying, the police don't necessarily solve crime. We investigate it and find all the facts. The people solve crime. Witnesses solve crime. Did you hear that? People solve crime. Witnesses solve crime. And there's another factor that's driven down the homicide clearance rates, and that's low clearance rates themselves. When people know that criminals have gotten away with murder, they're less likely to come forward and cooperate with the police. And it's become a vicious cycle. 
According to one report, as many as half of all the gunshot victims in Chicago refused to talk to the police about it. And in a city with a frighteningly low clearance rate, the thought of snitching can be a losing proposition. Peter Scharf, a Louisiana State University criminologist who has in the past served as a consultant to the New Orleans Police Department, was quoted in that USA Today article I referred to earlier, saying, With every one of these weekends, as in Chicago, where you see multiple killed and even more wounded and few arrested, the gangs become more emboldened and the witnesses weaker in their conviction to step up. You know, it almost seems counterintuitive that clearance rates continue to drop with increases in resources to fund cold case units, the omnipresence of video surveillance, and the remarkable advances in DNA testing. Typically, so the thinking goes, the more advanced technology we have at our disposal, the more empowered we are to solve cases, or problems in general for that matter. Yet, Despite the declining rates, R.H. Walton declares, while law enforcement labored under a conventional wisdom that murders unsolved after 48 to 72 hours were increasingly more difficult to close, the pendulum of time in cold cases has now reversed this adage. Time, once so unforgiving in homicide investigations, may now be an ally to law enforcement efforts to solve cold cases. This change is due primarily to two factors, the change in relationships and advances in technology. Today's cold case detectives have the ability to turn time into an asset, if. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowances for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools or watch the things you gave your life to broken, and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make a heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, 
if all men count with you, but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And, which is more, you'll be a man, my son. I want to thank you for listening to the show. In our next episode, the turkey's back, and we'll be examining those factors that just may help New York State police investigators finally catch a break in the Richard Adderson investigation. If you like the show, fatten up the turkey with some positive reviews on Apple and Google Podcasts, and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you haven't yet left a message at 917-410-5528 or emailed us at clues, that's C-L-U-E-S, at slimturkey.com, it's not too late to send us your comments, questions, or any tips that you may have about the case. We'd love to hear from you. For now, I'm Lee Purchase, and this is Slim Turkey. Getting closer every day Getting closer every day Lord have mercy on me We're talking about two different things Television and Life magazine Lord, have mercy on me. Oh, hey.